0: Hi, I'm Liz Solar. Welcome to Embark, where we navigate to what's next, and what may be next is a cancer vaccine, one that may be tailored to each person's particular type of cancer. We're talking to one of the researchers working on this groundbreaking therapy, which is called NeoVax. Kirti Shetty works at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, and she wears multiple hats, she serves as a Senior Manager of Strategic Initiatives at the Center for Personal Cancer Vaccines. Kirti is also a Business Manager for the Translational Immunogenomics Lab and a Business Development Fellow. She has a Ph.D. in Immunology from Yale University and an MBA from the Quantics School of Business and Technology. She was previously a Hellman Fellow in Science and Technology Policy at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Kirti gets the most satisfaction in mentoring the next generation of STEM students, most of them women, and in connecting people with each other. Kirti, thank you for joining us today, and welcome.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: I am science-challenged, so I'm really excited to learn something from you today. Could you provide a brief description of your work?
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, at Dana-Farber, I serve as a, um, essentially a program manager. You know, I have a scientific background. I decided to, you know, leave the bench. You know, not pipette anymore, and you know, kind of take a broader perspective of how science is done. Um, so I essentially serve kind of as a liaison, um, kind of the glue uh, that interfaces with the scientists, the clinicians, regulatory people, legal folks, um, finance team, uh, to make sure you know we're all on the same track um, and are aligned in you know getting towards the goal of treating patients with These personal cancer vaccines.
0: So, would you describe yourself as a program manager? Is that the type of thing that you're yes. doing?
1: Yes, it is. Um, so, it's a lot of you know, you know, people management, project management, um, but I still get to provide the scientific input. Um, so um, that uh, the degree in a PhD has not laid to waste.
0: <laughs> well, thank goodness for that. Your parents must be so happy. Um, <laughs> you you went from lab work to policy work, to running clinical trials, and then dipped your toes into VC and business development along the way. You said your own career path did not go as planned. How much of your career planning was intentional? What did you mean to do? Um, Would you take us on that journey?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, when I I went to college, pretty sure that I was going to be a molecular biology major um, or major in molecular biology. Um, And I did do that. Um, I was able to do some, you know, research um, later on in high school, and I really just enjoyed being able to ask questions, understand how things work, and that hands-on uh, experience of analyzing, looking into, um, you know, how cells work and analyzing the data. But then, as I took um, some more courses in college that were in history and policy and economics, I really enjoy, like, enjoy kind of seeing kind of the perspective of. The broader scientific enterprise, and how, from a view of you know science policy, how our decisions made um, in this enterprise. And so, I still decided to pursue a, a, a research career after undergrad and applied for a PhD, and I got into a PhD program in immunology and genetics. So, you know, I've always been interested in in science. You know, I since middle school and high school, I had excellent teachers. Um, And I was always um, attracted to the hands on um, experience, you know, doing experiments and then thinking about questions um, about why things work and um, was able to do a lot of research in college um, throughout um, my four years there. I took some classes outside um, of biology in econ and history and and policy, um, and I came to realize I kind of like that merger um, of science and policy. And I, I decided not to act upon it immediately. Uh, and I'll get to that um, in, in a few um, seconds. Um, so I, I decided to, you know, still pursue a research career because I really liked teaching, teaching and mentoring. And so I thought, you know, that was like the essence of academia. But then when I came to like my second year of graduate school, I realized like I, I didn't necessarily want to run my own lab and, you know, apply, continuously apply for grants and uh, think of, you know, new projects and um, to, to do research on. I just really enjoyed seeing the big picture of how the whole life science enterprise works. So, I think I kind of went back and thought about, you know, I really liked my science policy courses um, in, in college. And there was a science policy club in graduate school, and I joined it. Um, I really was excited by it when we went on a career uh, trip to DC, where we got to talk to science PhDs who are working at the NIH, the State Department, the National Academies of Science, um, and seeing how they were able to apply their scientific um, knowledge. To you know, science diplomacy and understanding how science and the public interface with each other, which is really you know key during this uh, pandemic, um, about the the two way understanding between um, both parties. So I decided to pursue a science fellowship after that, after graduating from my PhD in immunology um, at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and um, that was a great. A program especially in learning about project management and communicating with different sectors in government, academia, and industry. Um, so I was able to you know really learn how to um, communicate with different sectors, uh, how to get people involved and excited about the projects you're working on um, and understanding the impact it would have on their audience. That was my transition to science policy.
0: But at a certain point, because you went back to school, because apparently you're a perennial student, yeah. um, but you you pursued an MBA. So, yeah. it, and so I know that you work with venture capitalists and some business development. That did, did that MBA precede or follow your work with VC?
1: I would say what it preceded that. After my science policy fellowship, you know, I. I really enjoyed the the project management skills I learned, but I still missed um, the the scientific aspect. And um, I really liked to build and create things, so I wanted to merge my immunology background with the project management skills. And that's how I came across this role at Dana Farber, which was truly translational and I could have an impact on patients. So in this role, um, I began to realize like I really enjoyed making partnerships. Doing negotiations with vendors, and you know that really involved a lot of of business aspects. And when I was talking to you know my own mentors about you know thinking about future career steps, you know they were just telling me to kind of consider looking into VC or business development. Initially, I decided to first do an MBA uh, to just kind of get like the fundamentals and foundations. And so I actually did an online MBA uh, through the Quantic School. And, um, part of it was mostly that, you know, I had done six years of a PhD and I just didn't want to do two more years of school. And so this was a nine month condensed program. Um, so this online program is actually uh, free and it's an accredited online program. So, um, uh, it is, um, a valid MBA and I I learned a lot from it. And what was really interesting is that it's actually all done through an app. Um, and it's presented to you in these bite-sized, um, courses. And it was actually fun to take that class um, rather than kind of listening to a lecture and stuff. So I, I was able to kind of, you know, learn everything I would um, in a traditional MBA program.
0: This is a nice little plug for Quantic.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, you're just so, you know, busy with life and, you know, having a full-time job. So I was able to, you know, do a lot of these courses during during my commute to and from work. You know, like a lot of people are like, oh, you'd, you'd be missing out on the networking aspect of an MBA. Of a traditional MBA program, I feel like I make up for that by going to a lot of the networking events that already take place in Boston. And you know, as I as you mentioned in my intro, you know, I just really like making inter- uh, connections.
0: A- absolutely, I mean, there's so much innovation going on in Boston and Cambridge. In fact, I think that's how we we met is through the Innovation Center in, in Cambridge, and so people are always presenting their ideas there, whether it's business or scientific, high-tech, and it's it's just a fertile place to meet people and to develop projects. I, I had a question about that because back in the day, I was a partner with a, a hospital for a long time, and a, a lot of their research projects were um, grant-based, and they were in partnership with either big universities or the NIH or the CDC and at a certain point in time grant writing was not as popular or it was much more difficult to to land a grant and it was a lot of work and not a lot of great return and if you're a you know a large entity it can be really discouraging have you seen a shift from grant based to like VC or business partnerships
1: yeah so um In terms of our program, we are still very much um, grant-based, grant-focused. So all of our clinical trials are funded by the NIH or philanthropy. So we really heavily rely on foundations and philanthropy, and it just would not be made possible uh, without their support. And also, we try to still keep it in an academic environment and, you know, still have a um, kind of control or autonomy about how we want to proceed with our projects. And um, with funding, external funding from a VC or something, we may kind of lose that autonomy. So Mm -hmm. we just kind of, for our initial, our own program, uh, we decided to go with philanthropy um, and foundation support. Um, But there is, you know, more of a push to an um, excitement, you know, to spin out companies um, from academic institutions um, into new codes, you know, new companies. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, what, the Innovation Office at Dana Farber, you know, they work with PIs um, in that uh, capacity to either license out the technology um, or to spin it out into a new company. So, in my work there, you know, I so as I said before, you know, I I wanted to experience what it's like to be more in the business side of things. So, you know, I did this part-time VC fellowship and a part-time business development fellowship to really kind of catalog, you know, all the technology that's at that Dana Farber um, and, you know help assess with what could be licensed out to companies um, and, you know, help with an accelerator program that's being launched at Dana-Farber to help these companies and help the PIs uh, understand uh, how to um, launch and grow these companies.
0: I want to go back to your work at Dana-Farber because it's such a, it's an extraordinary institution to begin with. i I think it's um, almost unmatched in the country. There are very few places that do the type of work that they do and do it on the scale in which they do it. But I want you to get back to the research that you're doing on this NeoVax, this vaccine for cancer, because we are talking about vaccines all the time. It's ubiquitous in the news among pharmaceutical companies and political landscape, but we're hearing very little About a vaccine developed for cancer patients. Would you take us through your work at Dana-Farber and maybe, if you can, tell us how close you might be to developing a cancer vaccine?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I've been here for three years and um, the program started around 2011, 2012. So, before um, I arrived at Dana-Farber, cancer vaccines is not a new idea. You know, it's been tried in the 80s or 90s. uh, but not too too much success. But now with the advent of sequencing technology and genomics and better understanding of our immune system, uh, we're really at the you know the nexus um, of this all these technology to really move forward with these cancer vaccines. And a lot of the vaccine, um, the, the cancer vaccine concept is based on the infectious diseases, like the, the, the vaccines for infectious diseases. The thing is, for these cancer vaccines that we're working on, um, it's not a prophylactic. Like, you, you know, with the flu vac- flu shot, you get it, you know, in advance uh, to prevent from getting the flu. So, this is not the case with our vaccines. Uh, this is um, a therapeutic. So, you would, you would administer it to a patient who's already like in stage three, stage four of their cancer. Now, there are some cancer vaccines where you take it as a prophylactic, like the HPV cancer vaccine mm-hmm. but I uh, just wanted to uh, clarify that that's not the case for our vaccine
0: absolutely and, and in the past when people have worked on vaccine and I know that so many treatments for cancer are great for killing cancer cells but they also can kill you know healthy cells and I'm wondering if there's something about this vaccine that prevents that from happening does it does it keep the, the healthy cells untouched and vibrant
1: yeah so you know um we like to say, you know, there were like, you know, three pillars for treating cancer, which is like surgery, radiation therapy, chemotherapy. And the fourth one um, that has emerged, you know, in the past decade or so is immunotherapy, in which uh, you're harnessing your own um, immune system to target cancer cells. Some of the approved immunotherapies, um, it does uh, have an impact on uh, many patients, but still a good majority do not respond to them. And there are some uh, toxic side effects. So with this personal cancer vaccines, we are targeting neoantigens. So these are new antigens that um, arise in the tumor that are specific to that patient and the tumor. So they're normally not found in healthy cells. So antigens uh, kind of provide as markers on the cell to be like, hey, target me, you know, to the uh, the patient's um, immune system. So. So we're using those new antigens in a truly personal manner, uh, since they are so unique to that patient. With the uh, with sequencing, we're able to identify them um, and select the optimal ones that we think would be immunogenic, which means they would elicit an immune response. And so, um, making it targeted and specific to that, we hope that you know it would reduce any other side effects. And you know, we've already done two trials; we haven't had any toxicity um, or adverse events, serious adverse events. We hope that maybe the vaccine alone uh, would be beneficial and perhaps in synergy with other immunotherapies to make a stronger and more targeted response.
0: So I just want to understand this better. The vaccines, they are personal vaccines. So does that mean they're almost customized or they are customized for that person and for that person's particular type of cancer?
1: Yes, exactly. It is custom- so we, it's different for each patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as you can imagine, that can be expensive. So, you know, one of the challenges right now is um, manufacturing mm-hmm. um, because we had to make a, a new vaccine per patient. And the vaccine format could be a peptide, uh, which is a like protein based, um, or it could be RNA based, which is what actually mm-hmm. the COVID cancer, um, vac- uh, sorry, the COVID vaccines are right now. And the two you know, key players in that, Moderna and BioNTech, um, are actually uh, cancer vaccine companies as well. So a lot of the technology is similar, but with the COVID vaccines, of course, they're not being personalized. Uh, but here, the manufacturing and you know, being able to scale is, is a bottleneck that we are experiencing, but we are uh, coming up with technologies to try to address that.
0: Exactly, because it's so much work and so much expense in having sort of like a one size fits all type of vaccine. But right. these are they're customized, which yeah. is it's really hard to wrap my head around that, <laughs> that 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 can happen and and that because there is a, that matter of scalability about these vaccines. Like how much can you scale if you are personalizing them?
1: Exactly. And I mean, there are some groups that are, you know, looking at shared antigens and seeing if, you know, we can make an off-the-shelf thing. So, you know, multiple groups are working on some aspect of this. And so it's really exciting, you know, it's still kind of a nascent field and there's much more to explore, be explored. Um, as I said, you know, we already have two trials that we completed and these are like phase one pilot trials. So it's more to look into, is there a response? Do we see some kind of immune response? Is it safe? Is it efficacious? Mm-hmm. So these are, you know, you know six to 10 patients that we really studied. And unlike some of the um, industry companies, we really focus on studying the patient, um, you know, after, before and after they get the vaccine and just re- um, really studying uh, what happens to the immune cells and kind of tracking the kinetics and how they change, you know, um, in the body as over time after getting the vaccine. And I'd also like to note that, you know, as I said, you know, is the advent of sequencing technology and better understanding of the immune system that really has brought us to this point. Um, another technology that really has pushed us forward is, you know, machine learning. And so, you know, we actually use um, machine learning algorithms to predict the neoantigens as well, that would be immunogenic. That's how we select for the neoantigens. And so that's been an exciting research area of focus as well.
0: So this vaccine, the NEOVAX for cancers, are these stage one, two, three, four? Do you work with all stages? And what do you what results do you hope to get? Because I don't want to mislead anybody. This is not a cure. You're not gonna have this vaccine and you're cured. It is more of a, a help, more of a treatment.
1: Right, yes. So we're focused on stage three and stage four patients. So in our portfolio, uh, we are treating Melanoma, glioblastoma, and renal cell carcinoma patients, that's kidney cancer. Um, And we'll soon open trials in ovarian and blood malignancies like um, CLL and follicular lymphoma.
0: What type of a result could a stage three or stage four cancer patient hope to get after receiving the vaccine?
1: Right. So, you know, again, what we're really looking for in these initial phase one um, studies is to see if an immune response is elicited and how strong it is. Um, And, you know, just really understanding, you know, at a molecular level, what kind of cells are being engaged. We're hoping for, you know, mostly initially just to see um, if an immune response is activated. And, you know, hopefully that would translate to um, a better outcome or a benefit to the patient. But of course, yeah, definitely not going for a cure-all. Um, seeing if, you know, there is an immune response and hopefully, um, you know, the patient's lifespan would increase a little bit compared to um, standard treatments for that indication.
0: So you're being very cautious about what your expectations are for results for individual patients.
1: Definitely. And again, you know, these are phase one trials. And so, you know, as you know, from COVID, Mm -hmm. you know, the COVID vaccines, you know, you have to do phase two and phase three to really get an understanding and that would be a bigger um, sample size of patients as well. Right now, it's just more about understanding how uh, this works in the patient, in the body um, and what their responses are. So we would leave it to industry to kind of continue those phase two and phase three trials with a larger sample size to really see the whole benefit of the vaccine. You know, the field of immunotherapy has really blossomed in the past few years. Um, Even after I, you know, finished my PhD, did a science policy fellowship and kind of came back to the field. It was amazing to see how much progress has done been done in the past two years. So I was just excited to, you know, be able to kind of use my immunology knowledge to, um, you know, wage the war on cancer,
0: I guess. So you've been working with this cohort on developing the vaccine for three years. So what has developed or changed during that time?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's still, I guess, kind of goes back to technology. Uh, we're still making improvements on prediction algorithm. Sequencing is getting faster and cheaper. We're just also implementing new technology to again predict the the new antigens better, and um, hopefully get a better understanding of which ones would elicit that immune response. You know, we're still having discussions about the next generation of vaccines. Like, should we change the kind of formatting? Um, you know, these are peptide-based. We um, think about other kinds of um, delivery platforms and vaccine platforms. So, you know, we do have a lot of brainstorming ideas. And, of course, there's a lot of companies and institutions involved in this field as well. So, you know, it's just been a a lot of progress has been made.
0: So essentially, things are changing pretty rapidly. And if we were to talk six months, 12 months from now, you would have some new developments or changes And you could give us some updates on the vaccine. Yes, definitely. Great. All right. Well, we'll we'll check back then. (laughs) Um, One of your major passions is mentoring and encouraging young women to become more involved in STEM programs, which are heavier on science and math and something where I'm a little lacking. Do you find that more women are pursuing careers in medicine and the other sciences?
1: Yeah. um, You know, so... I would say that you know there is um, strong interest in STEM, you know, by women in you know in college and grad school. Um, I think it's about almost fifty-fifty, you know, in in some places in terms of enrollment, um, especially in the life sciences. So I, I'm a biologist by training, so it, so my uh, uh, perception is more biased to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you see the drop off when it kind of gets to you know uh, going for professorships and. Kind of advancing in the career ladder, and I think it's you know a lot due to kind of like that um, work-life balance, the professional and personal um, balance and stuff. So I think it's more about you know retaining uh, those women you know in the 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 career transition and keeping them in that leadership pipeline, making those kind of professional connections with women as well as men, and kind of hearing their perspectives and how they've gone about with their with their careers. And of course, everyone has gone through it their own way. So, you know, I would definitely recommend, you know, talking to folks, but of course, in the end of the day, you know, kind of understanding what are your priorities and having that self-awareness of what you would like to do um, and what is important for you, you know, to keep yourself happy in life. And I know it's very hard to do and it, it doesn't happen overnight, but that's just what I've been experiencing. And, you know, I'm still learning.
0: Well, you are a great connector, and uh, from your career history, you seem to be comfortable flowing into new situations and meeting new people. What do you enjoy most about making these connections?
1: I really enjoy hearing people's, you know, their own story um, and how they got to be, you know, where they are, um, and then, you know, being able to help them or make them connections to someone else, you know, to help them better understand their career trajectory or, you know, they were interested in making some career pivot and is helping them out that way. So it's, you know, definitely, you know, a two-way conversation. And then, you know, if I can be of any help with them to make the connections they need to, you know, get their company funded or, you know, to make that career transition always happy to help. So I just get inspired um, by by, um, people's personal stories.
0: If people wanted to connect with you, if they wanted to learn more about NeoVax, the work that you're doing with Dana-Farber, how could they get in touch with you or what, what site can you direct them to?
1: For our uh, Center for Personal Cancer Vaccines, you can follow us on Twitter at DFCI underscore NeoVax, N-E-O-V-A-X. Um, or you can um, find us um, on our website to search for Center for Personal Cancer Vaccines. Um, and then for me, you can um, search for me on LinkedIn um, and uh, i always happy to respond to messages over there.
0: I really appreciate your time today, Kerti. I just feel like there's so much hope out there now, um, even though this is still in process. I think a lot of people will, you know, leave with some hope today.
1: That sounds great. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me here. And um, again, you know, for all the women um, in STEM, you know, just be confident, Uh, Don't underestimate yourself and don't be afraid to ask questions. Just understand what your priorities are and what you want.
0: Excellent advice. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to Embark. If you have a personal story, story of change, innovation in science, business, culture, get in touch at liz at embarkthepodcast.com. In the meantime, thanks for listening.